We have been working through a passage in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles 29. So uh, you can turn to page 573 if you have a brown Bible. And let me just quickly help fill you in on what's happening here. David, probably the greatest king in Israel's history, is just getting to the very end of his reign. He's laid up all this treasure that he wants to use for the building of a temple for God. Up to then, the Ark of the Covenant, you probably heard of it primarily through Indiana Jones if you haven't read your Bible, but that thing (laughs) has been housed in a tent which has been mobile thing, and David wants to build this temple. Eventually it happens, but under his son's reign, Solomon's reign. So David's really setting Solomon up for success here in this chapter. What he's doing is he's inviting all the people of Israel to be a part of this building. And the reason we are looking at this chapter is because the temple in the Old Testament, in the, the Hebrew section of the Bible, stands for the church in the New Testament. And um, we, I won't recount all of that. We traced it through a couple of weeks ago. But the essence of it is that when we're reading a passage like this, it, it's calling on a number of it's calling, it, it resonates quite powerfully with the calling to be part of the building of Christ's church in the world today, which is Christ's mission in the world. It's, he kicked it off the day he ascended into heaven, and especially when a few weeks later he poured out his spirit onto the original disciples, and then the whole thing began to just explode in the Middle East, and then down into India and across the Roman Empire, and then all across Europe, and so on and so on until it brings us today. And it's now whipped all the way around the globe, and it's coming back from the east. And you see the church is growing most quickly in places like China. Um, Even if you see something bleak in Europe today, the worldwide scene is something extraordinary as Christ is building his church in the world. So the reason we're looking at this chapter is because of the resonances with um, what it meant for the these believers then to be included in God's plan and what it means for us as Christians today. So I'm going to read to you from verses 10 to 13. But let me just, I'll just recall verse 1. He said, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man but for the Lord God. And then in verse 5, David said, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord, and then it says that all the, all the leaders in, in Israel began to pour their gifts in for the building of this thing. They were, they were passionate for God. They were passionate for his glory. They wanted to see the temple built. And we're going to read verse 10 to 13 and then also verse 20. Verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Verse 20, then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage 
to the Lord, to the King. The theme I want us to think about today is, is worship. This is just in the natural flow of the chapter, what hits us here is that David is now turning his heart in gratitude and in praise to the God who he saw as really in control of the whole thing. And for us as Christians, I think it's important to state straight up that worship is absolutely central to the Christian life. John Piper, preacher in the States, famously said that missions, in other words, the spreading of the gospel and of the church in the world, exists. The whole reason missions exist is because worship doesn't. God's end goal, his purpose, his win, is that people will become worshippers again. That they will turn from, um, we're all worshippers by default. We worship all kinds of things. But that we would replace what the Bible describes as idols. It can be your career, your money, your ambitions, all these things. And replace all that with worship of the living God. The worship of Yahweh, the creator of the world, the creator of us. So essential. And you see that in the way that the New Testament talks about the Christian life. It says in Romans 12, so Romans, in the first 11 chapters, Paul just traces all um, the grand scope of what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. And it's really his most detailed kind of description of that. And then he reaches this point in, in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, where it then turns and he says, if, if all this is true of us as Christians... And obviously, I don't have time to recap it all. If, but if all this is true of us as Christians, he says, therefore, we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. The conclusion of your faith, the center of what it means to be a Christian, is that you are a worshiper. You see it also in um, a place like 1 Peter, a passage I just feel I keep going back to in 1 Peter 2, where he's talking about the building of the church, as, um, and he uses this analogy of it being like a temple, and each of you are like one of the blocks in the temple that's building a bigger and bigger structure in the world. And he says that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or as a temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's a whole purpose that you're being included in this great worldwide temple is that you'll learn how to be a worshipper. Learn how to bring sacrifices to God that please Him. That you find pleasure in the offering of your life. And a little bit further on, he says it in a slightly different way. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. In other words, you now belong to God if you're part of His, his church. And then he says the conclusion that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he said, the whole reason God has put you in his people and made you one of his children is that you might then become a worshiper. Sometimes that worship is directed towards God when you're offering spiritual sacrifices and sometimes it's directed towards other people when you're telling people how amazing God is. That's what he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Now, it's a funny thing that if worship is central to the Christian life, it's also obvious to anyone who knows anything about church that it's also probably the most divisive thing in, in churches. Not only in, 
in specific churches like this, but also when you look at things at, at kind of a global denominational level where you see all kinds of expressions of worship, don't you? You have the more rowdy, raucous sort of Pentecostal end all the way through to um, churches where they wave incense and wear dresses and there's kind of choirs and singing and that kind of stuff. And you see the full spectrum. And it seems to me that if you're going to walk into a church and maybe as, as a prospective worshiper, the first thing, the first thing that you make a judgment about the church uh, is to do with the style or the flavor or the feel of the worship. That tells you an enormous amount about the church, or at least we assume it does. And it, it seems to be so often the dividing line between one church and another that could otherwise have broadly the same kinds of people sometimes, but they just have different ways of expressing worship to God. And I think in some ways it seems strange, given that worship is so central, but then I guess it makes sense that we tend to divide over the things that are important, don't we? It's almost a testimony to how precious Christians think worship is, that that this is one of the reasons why we fragment and we find different ways of worshiping God. Sometimes it's to do with style. You know, there are arguments over um, liturgy. Should you have a should you have a kind of structure to your service that's written in a book and that you recite the words and it's all pre-planned? Or should you have a freedom and a flow? Um, should you use choirs and choral music? Or should it be more, um, you know, congregational singing? All these things come into it. Um, whether it's traditional, modern, all these things. Usually traditional, usually it means a couple of hundred years old. It doesn't mean a couple of cent- uh, millennia old. And... I suppose one of the, the heart of the issue as well is just the question of what you're doing when you come to worship. So what I mean is what are you doing when you come with the people of God into the church to, to sing? And there are, there's a whole range of opinion on that. It's surprise, it may surprise you if you've not read up about this, but there are, at the one hand, churches that emphasize that when you're coming into the gathering and you're singing to God, the purpose is that you would, in some way, encounter God, that he is present there with you. And then at the other end, there's the, the, there are churches that teach something very different in the sense that they say worship is about all of life. It's about, it's about the way you offer your life to God every minute of every day, and when we gather, all we're doing is just sort of singing to kind of teach each other through the songs and the lyrics and the words and edify each other and build each other up as a body. And so there are these divisions over this. Um, I mean, my view, if you're just wondering, is that I think it's, it's a both and. I don't see any reason. I think the Bible tells us that you have both. But all I'm trying to do is just paint for you a picture that though this is central, it's also the most divisive and difficult thing often in church life. And it's weird, but I suppose it's something to do with the importance of it. But shouldn't it be the case, though, that since worship is what, in a sense, puts us face to face with Christ, it's worship that ought to unite Christians more than anything else. If you were to go down to one of the great football grounds in London, like Chelsea or Arsenal's grounds, and one of the things that would strike you is that you will see people from every race, every walk of life, and 
for a few brief, brief moments on a Saturday afternoon, these people will be united, will sing together, because they have a common love, which is the game, as trivial and, and ultimately pointless as that might be. It gives pleasure, whatever, but it's not of a, a kind of lasting foundational value in your life, is it? How much more, then, should the Church of Christ understand its unity when Christ is the center? He's the one that we gather around. If worship, then, is a central thing in your life as a Christian, I want to just begin by asking, what are the marks of true worship? A little bit later, I'm just going to take you through some of the verses that we looked at in 1 Chronicles 29, but I want to just give you three answers to this, first of all, just to kind of frame the whole thing, because I recognize that because we're a new church, we're talking about subjects like this for the first time every time we talk about them. And I think it's just an opportunity for me to share something of what I think about these things. And let me just say this then, that I think worship, because of its centrality, is in a sense the test of true spirituality. Because of its importance, because of its profundity, worship is the test of of whether your faith is, is a real faith. It's the ultimate test in a way. Let me tell you a few characteristics then of what I think Christian worship is, is marked by. The first is this, that Christian worship is, is reflexive. I mean in the sense that it is almost an automatic thing. When, when you have a baby, um, one of the first things that happens with the baby within 24 hours usually is that a doctor will come and have a look at this baby and examine it. And they will do all kinds of, they'll poke and prod the child in all kinds of ways. And what they're doing is they're testing the reflexes because it reveals something about whether the child is healthy. They'll drop the child and catch it, of course, to see whether the child sort of reaches out. They'll stroke the, the palms of the hands. They'll prick the feet. They'll do all kinds of things um, short of actually injuring the child to just see whether this child is healthy and its reflexes are intact. And these things, the way the child reacts is not a voluntary thing. It's not a decision it makes. It is just completely... Um, involuntary and automatic. And the reason, of course, bear this in mind, is to test the health of that baby. Is that baby whole? Now, I think that we also have reflexes in our kind of emotional, relational lives as well. By that, I, I'm thinking about the, the kinds of things you do when you are put into different situations. How do you automatically celebrate when things are going well? And how do you automatically react when things are, when you're up against it and stuff is going wrong in your life? When a friend is um, rejecting you or being horrible to you, when the pressure is on at work, what immediately you do in reaction? These are your reflexes. And in a sense, they reveal a heck of a lot about you as a person. And this is true in a most deep way about the Christian. That somebody who truly knows God, somebody who truly knows God and knows him through Christ, in other words, somebody who is genuinely a Christian, will have spiritual reflexes. Because what's in has to come out. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus expresses this 
um, towards the end of that chapter. In this way, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, and nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. And he's talking, he's using an analogy to talk about people's lives. What you are has to find expression. It has to find a way out. And he says, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So he's saying that basically, who you are will always find expression in your life. And that you can look at someone's life and know what kind of a person they are, and particularly through their words. That's what Jesus is saying. And I think that this has to do, of course, with the most important words we speak, which are words of worship. And a Christian will worship reflexively for many reasons, but the two that jump to mind as being the most important are these. That a Christian has come into a new relationship with God. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that formerly you, you didn't know God. The Bible says you're a stranger. You were separated. You didn't have a passport. You're an alien, as it were, in a foreign country. You didn't know the God who made you or the world that he owns. You didn't know the God of the world that, he, that you're in. But the minute that you come into a new relationship with God, you can no longer live as a functional atheist. Which is to say, you can't live as though he's not there anymore. And one of the ways that that finds expression is that your heart will begin to worship. Another reason why Christians will worship reflexively is because the Bible tells us that you have a new heart. That God has replaced the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he's given you a heart to love him primarily. And that this is something profound that takes place in the life of a person who, who, as it were, crosses the line of faith, who comes from not being a Christian to being a Christian, that their heart begins to desire God in ways they never thought they would. And so to flip that around and look at it from the other way around, let me ask you, are you a worshiper? Because that is the test of whether you know Christ. A second thing about worship, the first that it's reflexive, the second is that it's passionate. In the Bible, worship is always involving the passions. In other words, the emotions, feeling, affection. And I'm, I'm telling you this stuff because I think it's really foundational to, to what we're seeking to build here. Let me just explain what I mean here. When we're talking about the place of emotion in worship, I think we can make many, many mistakes. Um, recalling just how big the scope is of different churches in the world. Some churches are afraid of the expression of emotions and accuse one side of emotionalism. The other churches are afraid of anything that resembles formality and the suppression of emotion and accuse the other side of traditionalism. Often these arguments are just going round and round in circles and they don't take into account the bigger picture of 
of what's going on in people's hearts and how different cultures find different expressions in different places. You know, it's not the same thing for a white middle-class English person to express passion as for a Nigerian, right, Coyote? This, it's a different thing, right? And the, we have to take into account all this stuff. So hear me when I say that when I talk about passion and emotion, I'm not trying to say defined in this narrow way. I'm not trying to say it ought to look exactly like this in every church or in every Christian who's, who's a worshiper. Because that, it's just, it doesn't really help us. I think it's possible for a church where, where it's very vibrant and people are very engaged bodily and emotionally for that to just be play-acting and hypocrisy. I don't think that just because people are lively, they're necessarily worshipping with their heart. I think it, equally, it can just, as we'll talk about in a moment, it can just be the whipping up or the effect of the music on people. But on the other hand, I think the churches where there is a more staid kind of formality, there can be something very profound happening in people's hearts, in a reverence for God. Of course, on the other hand, it could just be an excuse for your cold, cold feelings towards God. Some people just find that a whole lot more comfortable because they don't have any love for God. What I'm trying to say to you is it's not really the outer expression, that that is important because it's part of you, but it's what happens in here that's, that matters. Now, if that's true, then the greatest mistake we can make in the Christian life with regard to worship, is to think that, that cold worship is acceptable to God. We've just read a little portion of the way David worshipped. You can read tons more when you look at the Psalms, but the one thing you cannot miss is the overflow of the passions of his heart in honest and raw engagement with God. There's feeling in real worship. There has to be, because your feelings are a part of you. What you feel is an expression of what's truly going on in your mind and in your heart. When Jesus is talking to seven churches in Turkey in Revelation, this is before Turkey became a Muslim country, it was predominantly Christian. And he, he writes all these letters to these different churches. And one of them is a church in a place called Ephesus. You can go and visit, visit it today. And um, the ruins of it anyway. And he says to them, he says, I know your works. I, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and so on. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. He says, you've got all this in your favor. I think you're an amazing church. You, you, keep, you keep walking the right line. And then it turns in this letter he writes to them. He says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. That whereas once you were zealous and warm-hearted and passionate toward me, now it's just formality and dreary, almost a boringness to your church life. And I would suspect that some of you have been put off church 
or put off your faith for this reason, that maybe at some point you felt a passion for God and then you lost it. Or maybe you never knew it at all. You saw it in people all around you, friends who were extraordinarily passionate and you were like, I, don't, I can't relate to what they're feeling. Let me tell you that when God moves on, the light, on your heart and by the power of his spirit and through the gospel, all of that changes. That he can set your heart ablaze in ways you never would have expected. It completely reorientates your life. And what I'm trying to say to you is that not only is worship a reflexive thing, that what is inside you has to find expression if you're a Christian, it also needs to be a passionate thing. We can look at other passages that illustrate that, but let me move on. Let me say a third thing then. That, and it's a kind of a counterbalance to what I've just been saying. That Christian worship is always truth-filled. While emotion is a vital element of what it means to engage with God, emotionalism is a dangerous thing. What's the difference? Well, emotion can be the expression of your deepest convictions and passions and your knowledge. Emotionalism is when things work on your affections, on your emotions, on your feelings in a way that bypasses the mind. And the Bible shows us that that is an extraordinarily dangerous thing. You see it happening in some churches. You see it also, you know, right across the spectrum. You see it in the liveliest churches where they have the best pumping music. And sometimes the faith of the people's hearts can be dead because while the music is exciting them, there's no, it's not paired with truth. There's no real understanding of what they're doing when they worship. But you see it right at the other end, at the very highest churches with all the smells and, the, and things going on, where in some cases, in the most extreme cases, what's happening is happening in a language you don't even understand, and where it's being done for you by other people often as well. So a priest is enacting worship for you and you're not really a partaker. You're not worshipping with any engagement of the mind. But somehow, the magic of the atmosphere makes you feel like you've met with God. Now, I don't care how it finds expression. This is just pure emotionalism and isn't related to Christian worship at all. Christian worship doesn't look like this. I remember as a teenager, I... Um, I, was, I grew up in Winchester. A number of the churches had youth groups that used to get together every now and then. And uh, some of the youth were, were pretty passionate. And I think in a well-meaning way, um, they wanted to try and find ways of worshipping that were kind of a little bit new and a bit fresh. And a couple of the guys from another church suggested, why don't we get together and just have a DJ and, and play? I think, it was kind of, I think they were kind of into trance and stuff and that kind of music. And they wanted to just worship in some way by getting the decks going and, and whatever else. And to be honest, at the time, I, I, I kind of had two reactions to it. One, I didn't really like the music. It wasn't really my kind of scene. Um, I was more into Buddy Holly and Coldplay, which is sort of a bit weird, but that was kind of me at the time. And then, um, so there was the music. But the, the other thing was just that, how can you worship without truth? How can you worship without, without words? 
without the knowledge of God expressed in concrete ideas and expressions. And I think that the Bible shows us really, really clearly that if you're not worshipping God in truth, then you're not worshipping the true God. It calls, this, it calls it mysticism. Well, we, through history, what we see is this thing being expressed as what's called mysticism. It's just the attempt to engage with and meet with God outside of truth, um, bypassing it directly through some kind of experience. But to be honest, so-called Christian mysticism has more in, in common with, with Eastern religions and with New Age spirituality than it does with biblical worship. And so for me, these are three of the key marks of what it means to be a Christian who worships, that it has to be something reflexive. There are going to be times when you choose to worship despite how you feel, but ultimately your love for God flows from the deepest part of you, from your heart. It has to engage your emotions and it has to engage your mind. When we think about that aspect of engaging your mind, the Bible shows us that Christian worship is always in response to the truth of who God has revealed himself to be. That is why we have a book like this. That's why it's so big. In Psalm 19, he says, you can, you can discover the truth of God in the way he's created the world and, and meditate on that. And then he says, he shows us an even more perfect way, which is by understanding the word of God. And then it rounds off at the end of that of that psalm by saying this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So he says, after I've done all my thinking about you, may my thoughts be right and may that be good worship to you, God. Worship begins in what you think about God. And if you don't enjoy worship, it's probably because your thoughts aren't right. Your beliefs aren't right. If you say to me, I can't connect in the worship, I say it's probably because you've not, your tank is empty. You've not filled up with the truth about who God is. Any Christian who says that they hate theology is basically saying they hate worship then. Now, let me, after dropping that one, let me just move on. And... Um, <laughs> Let's just get back into this, and I'll just be brief, just taking you through what I think this passage shows us about worship. Four things. Firstly, that you worship God because, of, because you're happy. Four reasons why we worship that David shows us here. The first is that you worship God because you're happy. Look at verse 10. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. What do I mean when I say that he's worshiping because he's happy? Well, when you think about what worship is, it is always an expression of joy. It's putting enjoyment into words. You do it whenever you rave about your favorite film or your best friends or some amazing food that you ate somewhere. You begin to worship because you're expressing joy in the thing you found. That's what, that essentially is what worship is. But then it creates a problem, doesn't it? What does it mean if... We worship out of joy. What happens when we don't feel joyful? What happens when we don't have happiness in our life, when we're experiencing extraordinary suffering or setbacks or challenges or stress or whatever it is? 
How can we worship in those moments? And that is a profound issue for Christians who come, who, who want to walk with God on a daily basis and find ways of expressing worship to Him, or who come to church feeling dead week after week with nothing like a flame of passion in their heart. You know, you're not warmed up to Him. The answer, I think, is here in what David's saying. I think it's amazing that in the way David praises God here, he doesn't begin with what was happening in his circumstances, which was an extraordinary thing. That the whole of Israel was, was, was pouring in riches in order to build the temple. David doesn't start there. He says that's a blip on, on, on the timeline of what's, what's happening. And the, when we take a step back and look at the grand scale of God's involvement with his people, that should shape our perspective about God. So when he says here, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever, David is not worshipping just because of what's happened that day, as amazing as it was. And nor would he stop worshipping if the next day the whole thing blew up and went wrong. David's worship isn't contingent just on his daily, day-to-day experiences. They do affect the way he worships, you can see it in the Psalms. His worship is not built on that. It's built on a much grander scale on the great plans and purposes of God. And in particular, this is built on the gospel. When David is saying that you're the God of Israel, our father forever and ever, it's shorthand way of saying, God, you saved us by selecting us out from among all the peoples of the earth and making us your own. And you have shown your faithfulness, he says, forever and ever, through all the generations between Israel, who was hundreds of years earlier, to the present day, to me. You're the God who doesn't change, who keeps his promises, who is, who is faithful to his word. I think this is how Christians find the resources to worship. And where our joy ultimately comes from. It doesn't come from primarily from our day-to-day experiences. It comes from a knowledge of God's covenant love that is shown to us over decades and over generations. God is true to his word. If you doubt it, all you need to do is go and read the Bible, read what God's plans have been for his church in the world, and then look at what's going on today. We could say the same things David says. In the same way then, the Christian joy is deeper than day to day. It's gospel fueled. It's built on the knowledge of God's saving love for your life. And that means that regardless of what happens with this church or with your own walk with God, you know, if this church were to explode in ways that we we pray for, you know, that God would bring growth and save many people and all that kind of stuff, we'd be rejoicing. But if, if it just turns out to be a hard slog, which it is for so many churches, I don't think it matters in one sense. That shouldn't shape the way we worship God. Because worship for God is built upon on something deeper, something more profound on the knowledge that he has saved you and called you out of darkness and made you his children. You see that going on in Romans 8, by the way. You can go and look at it later, but Paul's saying, you know, what do we do in the face of suffering? When things are really hard, when you are down, he says you come back around to the knowledge that God's love is unchanging for you. That's what fuels David's worship before anything else. And so as Christians, we worship because we're happy in God. 
even when we're experiencing extraordinary torment in, a, on a, in any given day and suffering, there's something deeper. There's a deeper resource to draw on. It's what G.K. Chesterton called life joy. Secondly, you worship because you're humbled by God. It says in verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that's in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. What do you think it was that made David the great king that he is acknowledged to be? It's God's own verdict. He said, David's a man after oh, my own heart who do all my, all my will. I think we're getting a clue here. One of the reasons why David was the, great, the greatest king, really, in Israel's history was that he knew he wasn't that great. That his own sense of humility before God is what guided him. He knew that his reign comes from God and that God is overall, and that shaped his entire way that he, he ruled as a king. We know that he's a humble man because you only have to trace through his honesty in the Psalms, his transparency. He's not a guy who's trying to put on a front. He's not a guy who's trying to big himself up and believes his own press releases about how wonderful he is. He's the guy who lets the whole of Israel in on the secrets of his intimate walk with God and recognizes that when all said and done, he's just a man with all the weaknesses, all the frailties that any other man had. He just happened to be plucked off the hillside where he was shepherding and, and being made king by God's will. But it's not because of his greatness. And you see this humility being poured out and being really the fuel for David's worship. Worship for a Christian starts with, with humility because we know that we, whatever we have, we receive from God. Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? You can't look at your gifts and say, I made these. I chose these. You can't. You, if you're born with them, it's because God put them into you in his grace, in his providence. You can't look at your circumstances and think, I made my life this great. You may have worked hard or whatever, but ultimately God gave you the resources and the opportunities to do it. Humility lies at the heart of Christian worship. And this is where what is fueling and empowering David's worship here. And the reason I point that out is because I think our danger is always a danger of self-sufficiency. And that is particularly acute when things are going well in your life. This day of all days in David's life could have been a day when he would have patted himself on the back. It was the day of his greatest victory of all, and it was the pinnacle and climax of his amazing career. Of all days, he could have, he could have just bathed in his own glory. But instead, he's humbled because he knows that this is a gift from God. And he, he fuels his passionate worship to God. Thank you, God. Third, you worship because you're at peace in God. In verse 12, he says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. What David is expressing in his own way, in what might strike as a slightly archaic language, he's expressing this truth, that his, his belief about God was that God was totally in control in every detail of life. And for him, that gave him such an extraordinary peace that, that, that almost forced him to come back to God in worship. He worshipped a God who's much bigger and in control and over everything. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, with the video that's kind of been blazing across the internet, I mentioned it last week, with Stephen Fry um, really laying into the idea, how can we, getting angry with, with the God he doesn't believe in, essentially, and, you know, because of all the suffering he sees in life and so on. Some people react to that in that way. They say, listen, when I look at the evils of life, I can only conclude that either God is powerless or he's evil because he can't be all-powerful and good at the same time. The Christian, in the same way that David does here, can express God's sovereign control. You know, he says, you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. He's, saying, he's expressing in language that's, that's shown all through the Bible, that, that God's sovereignty over the details of life. And the Christian, rather than reacting as Stephen Fry did, as many have through the centuries, finds the most profound peace and comfort in the knowledge that God is in control. And it, it, it turns into worship. How can that be possible? How can we worship a God who's in control when we see all around us stuff that we object to? I think there are a couple of reasons. The one is that a Christian always looks at the circumstances of life or ought to always look at the circumstances of life within a grander storyline. To give you one example of this, when the early church in the book of Acts was just beginning, it's kind of like a newborn, a newborn sort of, you know, like when you see one of those baby giraffes or something, just sort of tottering along, just trying to find its feet. It was like that in the early days. And things began to go wrong quite quickly. Peter and John heal a man at a gate who was a cripple. Peter preaches. And the next thing that happens is there's a backlash. There's all the authorities in, in Jerusalem, the religious authorities, the political authorities, tell them you need to stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John, they go back to the church and they begin telling them what's happened. And at that moment, it's a pivotal moment, the church could have just died right there and then if they'd obeyed. And what happens instead is that they begin to pray. And it's fascinating to see the way they pray. Because they say, in their prayer, they say this. They say, truly, in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Remember, these are the guys who put Jesus to death just weeks or months earlier along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What are they doing here? What they're doing is they're taking a step back from the circumstances and saying, things might not be going well for us right now, but when we look at the storyline of God's involvement in the world, 
we know he has a plan. A number of weeks earlier, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they were in utter despair for days when he was dead. And it all changed when they saw him alive. These men had absolute conviction that even in the darkest moments of life, God is working out a grander plan that you cannot necessarily understand in that moment. That's one reason why the Christian looks at God's sovereignty, his control, and says, I can be at peace even in suffering. Another is because they know the character of God. The Christian, the Christian can never doubt. You can never doubt. Even if you were to face the most trying situations, even if you were to suffer in extraordinary ways, you can never doubt that God loves you because he has demonstrated his love once and for all when he gave his son to die for us on the cross. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? He's talking about suffering and all that can happen. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying we can never doubt the goodness of God. Now I know I've drawn your attention to, to suffering. Of course, in 1 Chronicles 29, David's experiencing immense prosperity and joy. What I'm trying to tell you is that God's in control of both. And that in both and in everything, the Christian finds a way to worship because they know that the God is the one who has ordained your circumstances. They come from him. Let me close off and just say finally, you worship because you're happy in God, because you're humbled by God, because you're at peace in God, and finally because you're thankful to him. That's how it rounds off here. He says in this last verse, verse 13, now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. I don't want to take long just to very quickly sum up the essence of this. That gratitude is the defining stance of a Christian. It's, it's the fuel for our worship when everything else seems difficult and inaccessible and when other truths aren't within grasp. Ultimately, the Christian is a person who says thank you to God. Why? Because the essence of what we believe is that everything that we need in life has been given to us as a gift, and particularly the gift of eternal life. And that a Christian, contrary to what people tend to think about our faith, Christians don't believe that we have in any sense earned even an element, a tiniest, tiniest speck of what God gives us that it is all given to us as a gift. 
David knew it. I just want to ask you, do you know this for yourself? Are you a person who can say thank you to God because you know that he has saved you? If you can't, it's either because you know that you're not in relationship with God at all, or it's because you, you're trying hard, but you've not understood this core thing about what Christian religion is. I know that there are many different paths that are preached about how you get to God. I know there are all kinds of religions in the world, but every single one of them will tell you, you need to climb this ladder. They'll just put it in different language and different, different expressions and different means. They say, you climb this ladder. This is the way up. There's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and so on. Christianity is different because it's the only faith where it says God has come to us and he's, he's come down to our level and he gives it to us as a gift. This is why Christians from, if I can call David a Christian, from, right from the first pages of the Bible are people who say thank you. Because everything we have, we receive as a gift by grace. Abraham didn't deserve God's favor when God called him. God put his hand on him and says, you'll be mine. And also all your descendants are going to be mine. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It's somebody who senses that God has put their hand on, you, on them. That God has put his hand on you and made you his own. Not through any effort of yours. Not because you deserved it. Not because you were worthy of it. Not because you'd been trying especially hard. But because he wanted you. Which is why, when all said and done, the most foundational language of Christian worship is this. Thank you.